I planned my sermon schedule about six months in advance. And so I, I went in August of last year, maybe September of last year, and planned out until about now, and I'll have a retreat in another week or so to plan the next six months. So I've, I've planned a sermon called Blessed Assurance for six months now. And for, the, all, for most of those six months, there have been these times when I've thought, I need to call Andrew Lutz up and get him to learn the hymn, Blessed Assurance. I've thought it many times, but, oh, there you are. I, uh, I see your girlfriend sits here, so you make your move. Uh, and... and but, you know, as a pastor with, with song leaders, they can be kind of divas, and you, like, do a hymn, and then there's this feedback, and so you want to be careful about him. No, Andrew isn't like that at all. But Andrew, on his own, this Monday, sent out a song list and said, hey, guys, we're learning the hymn, Blessed Assurance, for this week, which I thought was pretty cool. And, and, t- and actually, up until, like, Monday, I wasn't sure if he was in touch with God at all. And so now we know, and that was, that was really exciting to me. So we, we picked the right guy. You know, I watch a clip like this clip from the movie The Apostle, and, and, and in it he goes to a guy who may or may not be dying and says, will you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? And, and then, then he talks about going to heaven and going to hell. We're in, we're in the middle of a series on resolutions, and starting last week we started our spiritual part of those resolutions. There's a lot of people, uh, Kate Barron is a perfect example. Two years ago, Kate, two years ago, New Year's. Three years, that's what I said, three years ago, New Year's. She, uh, she made her, her New Year's resolution that she was going to find a church, and she's been faithful to our church ever since then. And so people make spiritual resolutions, whether it's church attendance or reading the Bible or, or discovering the meaning of life. People have these, these ideas of making resolutions where spirituality is concerned. And what happens in Christianity is a lot of times we, we get focused on this idea of heaven or hell. Uh, and last week, Melody shared with us about her experience dying as a child and, and, and conceivably going to heaven. If you didn't get to see that, check it out online. But all these thoughts on heaven and hell leave us with the question of, am I, where am I going? What am I doing? And I'm actually not a big fan of the question, which we'll talk about as we go on. I think there's other questions we ought to be asking. But I want to talk about the concept and the idea around it and, and kind of how do we know that we know that all is right with the world? Like, how can we know what will happen after we die? Or how can we know that right here, right now, I'm doing just fine? And the church, when it comes to the assurance of salvation, which is what we're talking about, you'll hear all kinds of statements. You'll you'll hear that you need to give Jesus your heart or ask Jesus into your heart. You'll hear things like pray the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer is a prayer that supposedly turns sinners into saints. It's a prayer. It's like an introductory prayer to Jesus. You'll hear the word repent talked about a lot. You'll hear people say, get saved, and then it always begs the question, what does that even mean, in my opinion? Like, what does it mean to get saved? But many people have gotten saved. Uh, Give your life to Jesus, be baptized. Some people say, if you want the assurance of salvation, you ought to be baptized. But then on the bottom left, you'll find out some churches think you got to be baptized in the right church, and you got to be baptized in the right name. If If you were baptized in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you missed it because you should have been baptized in the name of Jesus. They're called Oneness Pentecostals. And so you've got all these ideas. Some people believe that you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues in order to be saved. And there's all kinds of ideas out there on this topic of how do I know that I'm saved? What do I do? And it's called the study of soteriology. I've mentioned that word in here before. I think it's a very complex field of study. It's the study of soteriology is the study of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? How does a person become saved? What is the result 
of being saved. And it's, not, it's, it's a question that's been around since ancient times. There's, there's a passage in Scripture where uh, the Apostle Paul and one of his buddies have been, uh, they have been imprisoned. Or is it Peter? It's Peter, I think. And it's one of the apostles. I'm, I'm not remembering correctly. But they're in prison, and they've been, they've been chained up and thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. And in the middle of it, they start singing. They start singing hymns to God and worshiping God down in this dank cell. And, and this may be what it was like, but probably not. And they start singing songs of worship to God. And the scripture describes an earthquake happened, that the whole place started shaking and the walls started crumbling. And all of a sudden, they were free. So they were captives, and then they were free. And it says that one of the soldiers who witnessed this happening, so one of the soldiers had been listening to them, and it says he had witnessed them singing like that. And when the earthquake happened, he put two and two together and says, this is no coincidence. The walls came tumbling down, right? And he comes to them, and he says, guys, it says, with, it says he threw himself before them trembling and asked the question, what must I do to be saved? This isn't by any stretch the only example in Scripture. Jesus, in, in those days, it wasn't like today where you have a public speaker, a talking head, where a guy like me gets up in front of a crowd and I talk for 20 minutes or a half an hour or however long and you guys listen. In those days, they would go to the temple and they would sit down. And apparently in those days, Jesus was white and everybody he preached to was white, which is not the reality, okay? But, but, but the painters were white and back in those days, that's what they did. Uh, but they would sit down and they would start talking and they would, they would field questions and people would ask questions and then the teacher would ask a question in return. And a lot of it was just questions back and forth designated to make people think. And in one of the Gospels, it says, that a, it says a ruler came to him. So this was, a, this was a, a government official came to him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this is a question that's been on people's minds for a very, very long time. But I want to point out that I think that when we, ask, when we ask these questions, what must I do to be saved, we have this modern Western idea of what even that question means. When we say, what must I do to be saved, or what must I do to inherit eternal life, what are we thinking about? Anybody? Yeah, we're thinking about heaven and hell. That's what we're asking, really, a lot of times. When somebody says, what must I do to be saved? We're thinking about what must I do so that when I die, I will be okay. I think in ancient times and in the times of Jesus and the times of possible, that, the apostles, that wasn't the only thing they were asking. There was a whole lot more to it. And as you delve into the original language, that's what you find. You find that when this, when this soldier comes trembling before the apostles and says, what must I do to be saved? In the original Greek, what he says is, what must I do to be sotho or sozo? Sozo is, is the root word of the sotho. It also happens to be the same word that we get soteriology from. So that's what the study of salvation is. It's the study of sozo. And, and this word sozo in the Greek is way, way, way beyond what we talk about when we mean saved. It's way beyond heaven and hell. Sozo is more like shalom from, from the Hebrew dictionary, which is peace. It means an all-encompassing, everything is okay. And it ha it's not just then... It's not just heaven and hell, it's now. And it's even, it's even retroactive. It, it, it even works into working into the fabric of who we've become. And so it kind of infiltrates the past. This word sozo means, it, it's kind of like, what must I do so that everything in my life from beginning to end will be made right? It's not about heaven and hell totally. Obviously, that's the end result, but that's not the question. And when the person asks Jesus, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you go back to the original Greek, it's what must I do to inherit zoen, zoe, zoe life, you might have heard of, aeonion. And aeonion is this word that comes, we, we, we have this, the same, from the same root that we use eons. We say eons and eons of time, it's the same root. So aeonion is this idea that is, it isn't just forever. See, that's what, when we read, what must I do to have life eternal? We read, what must I do to live forever? That's not what the Greeks would have read. What the Greeks would have read is, what must I do to have real abundant life that fills me from beginning to end, from the beginning of my days to the end of my days and beyond? It invades everything, and it even acts retroactively, so that what must I do now to redeem all the stuff that happened to me before? It's much, much deeper than what must I do so that I don't go to hell? What must I do so that I go to heaven? It's really interesting when, when, when the, the, the government leader asked Jesus this question, he gave an answer that the modern church probably would not like very much. So when somebody says to Jesus, what must I do to have this life in abundance that fills me forever? He said this. First he said, well, first you must obey the commandments. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't covet. And the leader says, well, I've, I've done that ever since I was a little boy. I've always done these things. And Jesus follows up. He says, yes, but you lack one thing. He says, I want you to go sell everything you have. I want you to give that money to the poor. And then I want you to come and follow me. Now, you notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, ask me into your heart. He didn't say, be baptized. He didn't say, in a sense, he said, repent, but he didn't use the words, repent. He didn't use all the vernacular that the church uses today. He said something else, and it's, it's kind of frustrating, really, for a modern Christian, especially for a pastor, because what you want to do is pin it down. When somebody says, what must I do to be saved? What a pastor wants to be able to say is A, B, C. We used to say, admit you're a sinner, believe Christ died for you, confess that he is Lord. We, we want to say A, B, C, but you don't, you don't really find a simple A, B, C answer to sozo, to soteriology. And, it's, and, and, and when, the, when the centurion or the soldier came to the apostles, and he said, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your family will have sozo. You and your family will have this life that invades you and changes everything. And that just goes against everything we're supposed to believe as Christians. Because really, as Christians, we say, you must do this, and your family must do this also in order for them to not go to hell and to go to heaven instead, don't we? We think it's not, it's not our responsibility to be saved for our family. But then when you read all through Scripture, you see all this wacky stuff. And he even uses the word sozo. In one passage in 2 Timothy, it says women can be saved, sozo, through childbearing. Which, boy, that, that, that's a friction-filled passage of Scripture right there. Unbelieving spouses can be sanctified. Sanctified means pulled apart, set apart from God, for God. It says they can be sanctified through their believing partner. Then you find passages that say judgment day is going to be centered around how people treated the suffering. So in, in Matthew, Jesus tells this story of some sheep and some goats, and the goats, go to the goats go to hell, basically, and the sheep go to paradise, and what separates them is how well they serve the undeserving, how well they serve those in prison, how well they serve those who were hungry, those who were suffering. And so you find this passage where Jesus says, in order to go to heaven and not go to hell, you've got to serve the poor. But then you find Paul saying salvation isn't by works. It's not by anything you can do, but it's a gift from God. Well, which is it? I mean, is it something we do or, or, or is it something that's given to us? Or what, What's the answer here? A lot, of, a lot of pastors would say the answer is yes. 
Matthew says we'll be judged by the measure we judge others. So if you want to figure out how you're going to be treated on Judgment Day, figure out how you've treated others when judge, where judgment is concerned. I, Jesus says this in Luke. This is tough. He says if you knew not to do something and you did it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to end poorly for you. He says you're going to be beaten with many stripes. It says, but if you didn't know you weren't supposed to do it and you did it anyway, you're only going to be beaten with few stripes. Whoa, wait a second. What? 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 And then he says, he says, because to whom much is given, much is required. So you see this concept in Scripture that how, how, how harsh judgment will be for you has to do with the gifts that you were given, the responsibility that you had, how much knowledge you had, what kind of upbringing you had. And then finally, if you read in Romans, it says, believe it in your heart, confess with your mouth, and call on the name of God. Call on the name of Jesus. That's what it says you must do to be saved. So here's my point. If you read Scripture cover to cover, if you study soteriology, it ain't just cut and dried. It's not just this idea of you should do this and this, and then you get to go to heaven and not go to hell. It's something completely different in Scripture. My credentials are with the Assemblies of God. Most people would consider the Assemblies one of the more conservative denominations on the planet. And they have kind of a poster child of a Bible called the Fire Bible. And the Fire Bible is the Bible that the assemblies send all over the planet. I mean, hundreds of thousands of these things, if not millions of them, get distributed. And it's a, it's a, it's a really neat, interesting study Bible. As you can see, there's, there's chain reference in the middle. There's, there's commentary. Uh, there's, there's little word studies and Bible studies and a great concordance. It's a great little Bible. But there's this little study on soteriology right in the middle of it. And I'm paraphrasing because I couldn't find my fire Bible this week. It was the one I used extensively for a while, but I've switched Bibles. I couldn't find it. I don't know where it is. But at the beginning of this, past, this study on soteriology, this is kind of what it says. Don't quote me on this, but it's sort of what it says. It says, salvation is through Christ alone. This is kind of a universal evangelical view, that salvation comes through Christ. But then it says... How exactly that salvation is appropriated it can be challenging to understand. Now, again, I'm paraphrasing, so don't quote me. But So I, what I want to point out is that even one of the more conservative denominations on the planet, when pinned down to say, what must one do to be saved, says, well, we're going to need to give an entire article to that topic. It's not just as simple as raising your hand when someone says, do you want to be saved? It's not, just as simple, it's not just as simple as being water baptized. There, there's, there, it's, it's a complex, in-depth thing. In my family, we have what we call the illegal question. Babe, what's the illegal question in our family? What are you thinking? We are not allowed to ask that. In, in fact, that's one of the, the rules that I tried to establish early on. Here's the deal. If I'm sitting there thinking, if, if we're having a chat, we're laying in bed, she's got her head on my shoulders, and... And we're rubbing each other's hair, and, and she's thinking about, I don't know, a date night that we have coming up or something romantic. And, and she's thinking, what are you thinking? And I'm thinking, how can I improve my iron play in my golf course? I'm in trouble, right? If, if, if spouses could read one another's minds, it would be deadly. Okay? That's, that's the truth. So we've made the question, what are you thinking, illegal. You can't ask it. Now, if, if we can say, do you want to tell me what you're thinking or do you want to share what you're thinking about? We, give, we make it an option, not obligatory. Okay? In Scripture, I think there's this illegal question that we ask all the time. And it's, in, it's contained in Romans 10, which uh, in Romans 10, it talks about, it says the righteousness that comes by faith. 
And it says, the righteousness that comes by faith does not say in its heart, who will ascend into heaven? It says, for that is to bring Christ down from his throne. And it doesn't say, who will descend into the deep? For that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? And then it goes into this long spiel about soteriology. But it basically says, for those who have faith, don't go around trying to figure out who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. You're wasting your time. Because God, Jesus, is on the throne. It says when you try to figure out who's going to heaven, you're, making, you're putting yourself on the throne of God. Instead of allowing Jesus to be on the throne, you're pulling Jesus down from the throne and you're placing yourself there. And it says don't, don't try to say who's going to hell because when you do that, you're bringing Christ up from the grave as if God didn't go just as far as he possibly could to save everyone he possibly could. Instead, you're casting judgment on people that maybe he is reaching out to in a powerful way. It says just don't even ask it. But then it goes on to say, but what does the righteousness that comes by faith say? And it ends, it ends with the conclusion that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it talks about how there are some people who can have assurance about their own salvation. There, are, there is a way to know that you know, but you don't need to go around all the time trying to figure out who else is going where. It's not our job. It's not part of who we're supposed to be. It does say that you should work out your own soterion, sozo, your own sozo. It says you should do it with fear and trembling. It says this should be serious. You should really actively be searching for this sozo life that God wants to give you. But you do it for you. So when it comes to others, judgment falls off. But when it comes to you, you become your harshest critic. There's, there's a freedom in it, but it also means that you take it very, very seriously. 1 John 5.13 says, I, I have written this. So he writes his letter. He says, I write this to you who believe in the name of Jesus or believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have this zoe, this life that goes from beginning to end, that infiltrates everything, that just totally wipes out your past, makes it clean, makes it new, sets right now in order and gives you confidence for the future. He says, that's why I've written these things is so that you can know that you know. And it's, it's on you to study. It's on you to believe. It's on you to trust. It's on you to get into Jesus and to experience the sozo life that he offers. The question we often ask is, will I go to heaven or will I go to hell? Um, I, th I think a, a better question is, how can we be assured of where we stand? And so I want to talk about four categories of people. There's the rightfully assured that's what we just talked about. It's the people who believe in the Son of God, who have sozo life, who have had their life from beginning to end transformed. And Scripture says those people should have some confidence. It says those people ought to, ought to feel okay about where they're at. Then you've got the wrongly assured, the wrongfully assured. You've got, in, in Matthew 7, it talks about how there's going to be people that come in front of Jesus one day and say, Jesus, I worshiped you, man. I, I prophesied in your name. I did miracles in your name. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. Basically, get away from me, you who work evil. So in Scripture, there's this space for people who think everything's okay with the world, and yet we find out that underneath there was something ugly and sinister there that wasn't the reality of their hearts. You find the wrongfully unassured. So you find these people that, that think, oh, no, I'm, I'm not right with God. I've got to keep working and working and working. And it's like, it's like my son, if he kept coming to me saying, I only hit two out of three basketball goals today. Dad, I'm not worthy of your love. I only hit two out of three basketball goals. I can't dribble as fast as some of the other kids, and I'm not worthy of your love. And I'm saying, are you crazy? 
And there are people like that. This is the passage of the prodigal son where the prodigal comes to the father and says, Father, I know that I've been living with the pigs. I know that I betrayed you. I know that I hurt your feelings. He says, but I, and I know that I'm unworthy to call you son, but will you at least let me live in the servant's quarters? And the father's response is, are, are you crazy? You're my son. You are everything to me. And he goes out and he kills the fatted calf and he gives him a new robe and he raises him back to a place of honor. And so you've got some people who think that they're really lousy with God when the reality is they're, they're much closer than they think they are. And then you've got the rightfully unassured. And scripture describes these as the enemies of God. And I don't, I don't deign to tell you who those people are, but Scripture describes that there are such people. There's people that hate God. There's people that hate other people. There's people that are filled with anger and violence and hatred all the time. And it says those people rightfully should assume nothing but what it calls a fiery judgment. In that passage, that's what it says. It says the enemies of God, that's what they should expect. And maybe these are harsh categories, and I don't want to, and again, I go back to Romans 10, the illegal question. I'm not about to tell you who is who. I don't care what they're doing. I can't look at someone and say which camp you belong in, and I'm not even talking about the camps here. I'm talking about the assurance. I'm talking about how do you, as a person working out your own sozo, how do you end up in the camp where you are rightfully assured? How do you end up in the place where you know God and are confident in your relationship with God and that it's a real thing that's working out. And I have three very quick tips. In that passage where he felt, it was Paul and Silas. See, I knew I put that up there. The jailer fell trembling before Paul and Silas. When the jailer saw the power of God, his response was one of humility. He's gone from the jailer and the prisoner to now the one bowing before the prisoners. There has been this moment of humility where he saw something bigger than him, he saw something he couldn't handle, and his natural response was to, to lay down in humility. And so my first tip is, is, number one, to recognize God's bigness, or even Sozo's bigness, and your own smallness. And it could be and or. You could just, just for the first time in your life, actually realize just how small you are. Or you could, for the first time in your life, actually realize just how big he is. Or this sozo life that all is well with the world could seem so far away from you and suddenly it seems unattainable. To me, that's step number one. It's this recognition of humility that says, I can't do it. I can't make it happen. I cannot generate sozo in my life. And what we find is all these, these, desi these, these attempts to bring real life in somehow just end in disappointment. And at some point in our lives, we recognize I'm powerless. I want you to imagine for a moment you're at Niagara Falls. You're on one side. You're on the right. There's a tightrope that runs to the left. It's really narrow. It's tight. It's a tightrope. But somebody says, you got a shot. I need you to get from side A to side B. Go. How many people in here feel like you could make it? And you're not allowed to shimmy. you got to walk. Most of us are dead meat, right? what I'm trying to point out is that there is this thing that is our goal and it's salvation. And it's not just heaven and hell. If it, even if it was just heaven and hell, we look at it and say, I, I can't. There, there's, there's no possible way that I could ever make that journey. I'm, I'm incapable of that journey. So a lot of times we hear believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I think this illustrates kind of exactly what those words mean. So when Paul and Silas say to the jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your whole family, they're not just talking about mental assent. They're not just talking about a recognition. They're talking about a belief that, that ends up in action. And so when we talk about soteriology and we talk about all these different phrases, be filled with the Holy Spirit or, or get saved or give your life to Jesus, I'm kind of a, in a sense, except for the bottom left one, be baptized in the right church. I kind of think that's heresy. But other than that, I'm, I'm a fan of most of this stuff. Uh, you know, if, if, if you want to raise your hand and go down and respond to an altar call, and, and that, is, that is your step of getting in the wheelbarrow, so to speak. So you've got this journey that's impossible. It's a recognition. I can't make this journey. It's recognizing that there is one who may provide the answer to this journey, and it's putting your trust in that one. And, of course, Christians have believed historically that Jesus is the one that can make that journey for you. And so when we talk about all these, praying a sinner's prayer, for example, you don't find a sinner's prayer anywhere in Scripture, and yet there are many people who have had their lives transformed as a result of something like a sinner's prayer. So I want to teach you one more Greek word, and then we'll be closing up pretty quick. It's this word palingonesis, palingonesia. And you'll notice the end root is the same root that we would take the word Genesis from. And what it means is new beginning. The ancient Greeks had this idea that every now and then the universe collapsed in on itself and then started over. And uh, sometimes they believed it happened in a big fire. So the, the whole universe would, would burn and then there would be a new seed planted and the new universe would begin. And it was this palingonesia. And it comes from Genesis. It's a new beginning. The interesting thing about Jesus is many times he uses this word palingonesia to describe the result that will happen to people should they follow him. There's several times in scripture where Jesus would use that Greek word to say, if you will follow me, palingonesia. If you will follow me, it's a brand new start. Everything will just be destroyed and something new will occur. In Corinthians, it says, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, it says he is a new creation. Old things are passed away and all things are made new. So when we look back at the answer that Jesus gave, he says, he says what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, obey the commandments, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. What we're looking at is a moment of palingonesia, right? This is a transforming moment in this person's life says he went away sad because he was very wealthy and so he didn't want to sell all his stuff and give it to the poor. But what Jesus is looking for is, are you willing to embrace life eternal right here, right now, and let it invade everything? When you look at the, the, the apostles, when they, he said, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, come connect with this message that we've been sharing with everybody. Be converted. Get saved. And it's a moment of palingonesia for this guy. I have a buddy, his name's Joe Marler. And Joe has started a church in Goodlettsville, Tennessee. That's him on the right. Uh, yeah, the, the middle guy's not the one starting the church. The guy on the right has started a church. And the interesting thing about Joe is that when Joe had his palingonesia moment, his, his conversion moment, he was in jail. And if I remember the story right, a pastor had gone to, sh to share with him the gospel, kind of like you saw in the original movie clip. A pastor came in and told him the gospel and said, do you want to accept Jesus into your life and into your heart? And Joe made that decision and turned his life over to Jesus. And today he's starting a church. What, what I find fascinating about Joe is that 
prior, and I don't remember if this was why he was in jail that time. He may have been in jail multiple times. But at one point in, the lot, in his life, he was in jail because he had beaten someone severely with a baseball bat for flirting with his girlfriend. That's, that's the kind of violent that gripped, violence that gripped Joe's heart. And today, if you meet Joe, Joe is about the gentlest, most compassionate, merciful, kindest. Greg, you know him? Are you nodding your head? He, he, he's just a spectacular example of what it means to be a human. So he's gone from a guy who would gladly beat someone to near death with a bat to now starting a church that he wants to be a, a life-giving, life-sustaining church in the Goodlettsville area. And this is a church that we've been supporting. But here's, here's my point. He had this palingonesia moment. He was transformed. And I don't want to try to paint a picture that everybody's moment is the same, or even that it has to be a moment. It could be a series of moments. It could be kind of this lifelong unfolding process. But somehow, Scripture describes this palingonesia thing as something Jesus can do and wants to do in you if you will get in the wheelbarrow. So my three tips for soteriology are one, Approach things humbly. Recognize you can't do it. Number two, get in the wheelbarrow. Place your trust, and in my opinion, it comes through Jesus and only through Jesus. I'm not, that, I'm not saying who goes where or who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. I'm saying that real life, sozo, zoe life, in my opinion, comes only through Jesus. So get in the wheelbarrow of Jesus and then palingonesia. Let him transform you. Let him do the work of transformation in you because he desires to do it and he can do it. Andrew, would you come up? Jesus said this in the Gospel of John. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has this zoe that invades everything. He says, if you, will, if you will hear the words of Jesus and respond to the words of Jesus, this real true life will fill everything. And it says they, they don't come under judgment, which is a root from crisis. They don't have crisis in their life but it says they have passed from death unto life. It's being on one end of Niagara Falls and being completely incapable of getting to the other end. And someone came along and said, here, let me take you. That's what I believe the gospel of Jesus is, is that you can't do it. You can't experience real life. You can't experience eternal life. You can't experience all is right with the world, shalom, on your own. And yet God has revealed himself through his son, Jesus, and Jesus wants to do that thing in you.